Welcome to episode 42 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie Von Latke, and my co-host, Steve Seinman, will join me shortly. In today's episode, we talk about the allegations of sexual misconduct raised against the former chief of the defense staff and the military coup in Myanmar. Our feature interview is with Major General Craig Aitchison, the commander of the Canadian Defense Academy. At the very end of the episode, we have Steve's R&R segment. Thank you for listening. So, Steph, how are you doing? Doing great. Thank you. As of tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, actually, Kingston is in the green. So we're seeing progressive reopening around here. Might be too soon. I know uh, you think it is, Steve, right? Yeah, I think it's too soon. Maybe not for Kingston, but for the rest of Ontario. I think the, the general pattern has been that politicians have been too slow to close things down and too quick to open things up. And now that we have these new variants around that are much more contagious, I just think we should be patient. But politicians can't be, so they're not. So the big story of the week in Canadian defense was the news about John Vance, that General Vance, after he retired, it was reported that he behaved inappropriately as chief of defense staff towards women who are under him. And this was not only important because it's important, it was important because he spent his entire term with the issue of women in the, in the Canadian Armed Forces that he came into the position after the I think around the time of or after the Deschamps report, which identified how severe the problems are for sexual assault, sexual harassment, particularly for women in the Canadian Armed Forces. And so he launched Operation Honor to try to reduce these problems. And then we find after he's done that he behaved inappropriately, or at least is accused of behaving inappropriately. And one of the striking things, of course, is that it was only discussed in public two weeks after his or two or three weeks after his time in office was over with, which suggests that people were only willing to talk about it after he's out of power. And the new CDS kind of hinted at this in his own statements about this because he talked about deterrence effect of the fear of retaliation or the actual retaliation against people who report. So that's a lot of stuff right there. And I don't know where you want to start, Steph, but I thought this is the issue of the day that we need to talk about. Yeah, you're right. We we do need to talk about it. And I'm sure the shock waves have been felt throughout the Canadian Armed Forces, though at the highest levels, it seems this is an issue that's come up before, even around the time that Vance was appointed as CDS around 2015. And you're right to note that 2015 is a significant milestone, not just because of Vance's appointments, but because sexual misconduct was the priority as he took up the role. So you mentioned Op Honor, you mentioned the Deschamps report, and I think it's worth reminding that the report found that there was a sexual culture within the CAF, that there was underreporting of sexual misconduct, mistrust in the enforcement of rules, and perhaps most importantly for a discussion today, Steve, mistrust in the chain of command. And one of the most talked about recommendations was that a reporting line outside of the chain of command was needed, which prompted the creation of the Sexual Misconduct Response Center as an independent body. There's a bunch of things that come to mind. And, and I do want to mention a few things about this story as it continues to evolve. And at 
as the investigations run their course. The stories we are reading about right now refer to a relationship between Vance and a woman serving in the military that was deemed inappropriate by the woman who came forward and referred to as professional by Vance. And another comment Vance made in the media regarding maybe sending inappropriate messages from his military email to a female corporal is saying that he has no recollection of the exchange and suggested that it only would have been intended as a joke. And many might think, you know, if this is, if this kind of behavior was lewd and unwanted, why didn't these women say so? Or why didn't they speak up at the time? And I think it's definitely worth thinking about this story through the prism of acute power imbalance, because this is something that the CDS has with almost everyone in the military and Vance would have been no exception there. Someone like Vance is, of course, keenly aware of the legislative provisions, the policies and the training requirements Mm -hmm. tied to preventing sexual harassment in, in the CAF. He was basically the spokesperson for them. But misunderstandings about consent prevail everywhere. A woman or any harassed person not speaking out against behavior that is inappropriate does not mean that behavior is welcome Mm -hmm. or that she is providing consent. Also, a relationship that starts off consensual, like a mentorship relationship, can lead to sexual harassment. There are a whole bunch of legitimate reasons for going along with these unwelcome interactions and staying silent. People who are more junior or in more precarious employment conditions fear for their job. They might fear other types of consequences at work too, like not being believed by your peers, which is something that happens all the time, or being ostracized for speaking out. And another reason for not coming forward is not trusting the reporting process or not believing that you'll secure a fair outcome, even if you do go through with it. And so this really brings things back for me to some of the key findings from the Deschamps report uh, and understanding that despite everything that's been done in the last five years, there are still persistent challenges here. So I'm wondering, you know, as we talk about this, what else should be done? You know, there have been steps to prevent sexual misconduct. Uh, The CAF has put new policies into place, new procedures. The Sexual Misconduct Response Center was created, something I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Training was updated. There was a communications spree about this at every level of the organization. And then... You wake up last week to these headlines, and if you were a cadet at RMC or if you are Mm -hmm. a general officer who's volunteered to be a champion for women in the CAF, you read this about the former CDS, and you can see why it's so hard to rebuild the kind of trust that is necessary for these policies to work as intended. So I think the next step is to have this more nuanced talk, perhaps, about consent Mm -hmm. and about consent when power dynamics are at play, because this is what's really important in these discussions as this story continues to to evolve in the news and we continue to follow it. Yeah, I I think you really hit a nail on the head there. And and you mentioned a couple of things there. One is that we talked last summer about a report that came out about how the cadets of the RMC were not following the rules. They were not reporting incidents that that they had observed themselves. And in the aftermath of that, there was an effort by D&D to try to explain away, in some ways, this report. And it shows that it's one thing to create a lot of policies. It's another thing to change the culture of an organization. And one of the things that emanated within the culture of the CAF the past five years, I don't know if you heard it, but I did hear it, was that there were hints about this behavior from Van. 
finance. And so, so I heard people say, well, what does Operation Auto really mean if the guy who's starting it has his own track record? And I was never too sure to how to evaluate that because I wasn't, you know, they were basing their stuff on, on rumors that they had heard. So it's one of these things where things are vague, but it really makes these kinds of initiatives really hard to, to have any, any force if the people who are promoting them are seen as tainted themselves. And so this goes back to what you, one of the things you mentioned early on, which is what did the Harper government know when they appointed Vance in 2014? And what did the liberal government know along the way as they kept him around? I mean, one of the stories had it that Minister of Defense Saijan was informed about this in 2018. And 2018 was right around the time where Vance had been there for three years. So they could have moved on from Vance at any point onwards without any kind of real controversy saying he had done his time. But they kept him around and kept him around and kept him around for a variety of reasons. And I'm not going to say that Vance was, was bad at the other parts of his job. I think he did a lot of the stuff quite well. But if this was a priority. And we have to remember that one of the ways that this government tried to define personnel as a priority is was they moved the personnel part of the strong securing gauge to the first chapter of, of the document. It didn't necessarily make sense from, from the way these things had been made in the past. We usually identify threats first and go from there. But they put personnel first uh, symbolically to show that they really cared about these kinds of issues. But they did that at the same time that Saijan apparently just reported the situation to the ombudsman. He's not saying whether he told uh, Justin Trudeau or not, the prime minister. I would assume he would because one of the rules of politics is don't surprise your bosses. And so mm -hmm. if you find something out like this, you, you would inform your boss. So that way the boss would have some say in this. And indeed, since it's Trudeau who ultimately chooses how long the, the CDS sticks around, I can't imagine Sai John not reporting this upwards. So either he failed quite miserably in his job, or he's trying to cover for, for Trudeau not taking action two years ago. So there's a lot of politics to this. And of course, we're seeing the opposition now want an investigation done by parliament, by the defense committee. And that's perfectly fine. But we also have to keep in mind it was the conservatives who put Vance into this position in the first place. So the Harper government do due diligence when they appointed Vance way back when, as well as did the liberals. I mean, both parties really sort of own this decision more or less. When we're, when we're thinking about uh, this story too, it brings up an earlier conversation we had right around the time the StatsCan survey came out in the fall about the duty to report. Mm -hmm. And I think this is going to come up again here because the duty to report, meaning that members of the forces must report all incidents of misconduct, including inappropriate sexual uh, behavior, has actually led to further underreporting in the CAF because victims, survivors, persons who've suffered harassment fear that it will trigger an automatic investigation or reporting process. So I think that we need, you know, there's a lot of attention that's being put on Vance and there's a lot of attention mm -hmm. that is being put on who is to blame in this mm -hmm. whole situation. But I think we shouldn't lose sight of this reform opportunity right now for how we yes. can rethink the system so that it could put victims, survivors, uh, members of the military who have suffered and who suffer from harassment at the center of those reform efforts and think of their needs first. And it's clear that the system to date has not been the best in terms of encouraging people to come forward. And certainly the duty to report has contributed to this chilling effect where it's scaring people out of coming forward. And when you don't have formal complaints, then it becomes harder to take decisive actions when allegations come forward informally. 
I think one of the things that has to happen in it is there has to be consequences, right? If why report if you don't see consequences happen? This is something I've complained about in the academic side of things. Is that I, you know, in my past employers have said, well, we're going to treat this more seriously now. But if you don't actually see people pay a price for their behavior, then why go through the painful process of reporting? This true in academia, it's true in the military. Is have we seen the military over the past five years with these various initiatives? Maybe there's less reporting, but question is, is have they actually penalized the people who have engaged? in predatory behavior of one kind or another. And if you don't see people being punished, then that also creates this idea that these reporting efforts are, are really not consequential for the perpetrators, but are very consequential for the survivors. So I think that has to be done, has to be taken serious as well. Take a look back and see, are people paying a price for their behavior and which people are paying a price for their, their behavior? Again, with uh, hierarchies like the military, the power relations are everything. And we're seeing that right now, where again, we can't help but notice that these you know, this news came out after not during Vance's time in, uh, as chief of defense staff. I, I think that this view, this belief that perpetrators are still getting away with it with a slap on the wrist while uh, victims and survivors have to navigate a very complex system and be re-victimized through it and at the end not really find justice. I think this view is still very, very prevalent. It's prevalent in the military. It's prevalent outside. But I think it's definitely fair to say that in a rigidly hierarchical organization like the military, these perceptions uh, are even more acute and the power relations I alluded to earlier, mm -hmm. which make it even harder to, to come forward formally, are you know, very present in the armed forces. Well, there's always an opportunity to, to learn a lesson here. And so if I can speak to all of the bosses out there, when you are a junior member of the military or a junior employee anywhere, power imbalances make it hard to clearly say that the behavior you are being put through is not welcome. And yeah, I do think this is harder in an organization like the military. So I hope that you know we can engage in those types of conversations about how we can revisit our own behavior as leaders and really be mindful of the consequences of what we say in do. That's really well said, Steph. So shall we move on to Myanmar? What we had last week was a coup in Myanmar that the military came back in saying that there had been, yes, voter fraud and other kinds of problems in the previous election. Why? Because the military's favorite party got crushed in the previous election. And so they came back into power, although they had never really left. Uh, it was not as if the military was not a dominant force in the political scene, but they overthrew the government. They're promising cleaner elections in the future. They're promising to come back, you know, to let democracy flourish in the future. But these are usually the traditional excuses military is used to come into power and it's not entirely clear that they leave anytime too soon and, and we know from the scholarship of coups that coups do not lead to wonderful democracy in their aftermath. What were your impressions of the events of last week besides the aerobicizing influencer that was <laughs> had the video uh, with a coup in, her in the background? So there's two things I guess that come to mind when looking at what happened over the last two weeks. The first one is I'm wondering about the impact of these communications blackouts on the ability of protest movements to get more international traction. And I remember when I was in undergrad, we used to talk a lot about the CNN effect referring to events in the 1990s, you know, Somalia, Rwanda, they all come to mind. And that news cycle was key to generating a sense of international solidarity. And now we're seeing from one crisis to the next, the communications blackout being resorted to as a tactic to cut out protesters mm -hmm. from the rest of the world. So I'm wondering about, you know, how we overcome this as we keep 
witnessing this from from crisis to crisis. The other one, of course, is much talked about, and that's on San Suji as the personality she was, you know, the Nobel Prize winner being under house arrest and being you know, an important symbol for democracy and human rights to, you know, what we've witnessed of the campaign of uh, genocidal violence in Rakhine State by the military and her denial that the genocide took place. And, you know, she's isolated now in stark contrast to the last time she was under house arrest. And yes, world leaders are speaking out against the coup, but there's no outpouring of solidarity for her. So I'm wondering both on the communications blackout point and yeah. in terms of Aung San Suu Kyi as, as a personality able to galvanize international public opinion on her side, we see a very unfavorable situation for, for the protesters this time around. Yeah, it's very difficult because it's hard to have a lot of support for the democratic government that have been accused of, you know, facilitating or being complicit with genocide. But the other thing is, is that we have the international community is divided on this. We have most countries supporting UN action and we have the Chinese vetoing it or promising to veto UN action. So we're not going to get anything out of the UN over this because... China fundamentally believes that domestic stuff is domestic stuff, and it's not their national community to say anything about because they have their own domestic political dynamics that they don't want any criticism over. So this is a, a continuing thread, and as China gets stronger and more bold in its own behavior, it's going to block more and more of these things, which means it's going to be harder for the UN to try to intervene or, or play any kind of role in all of this. And we have to look to other institutions where China does not have a veto to, to play a role. And then again, as you mentioned, this is a particularly tough case because the, the existing government didn't have clean hands. And so it's kind of hard to say we want more democracy when those who were sort of democratic were engaged in or supporting horrific things going on. So it really makes it very hard to mobilize around anybody. But we could try to focus on the protesters themselves rather than the, the government and see what they are asking for. And uh, I guess that's the best we can do. Steph, can you tell us about our future interview since you're the one who conducted it? Absolutely. I got to interview Major General Craig Aitchison, and he's the commander of CDA, the Canadian Defense Academy, which is right here in Kingston. But of course, we recorded the interview virtually. And the conversation I had with uh, General Aitchison was around professional military education or PME and about the importance of professional development when whether you're in the military or not, and the importance of ties between the military community and academics like us, uh, especially when it comes to fostering PME professional development opportunities and exchange of knowledge, something that you are very familiar with, Steve, in your efforts as the director of the CDSN, something that's at the core of this network, which I'm, of course, also a part of is how to foster closer ties between practitioners and you know certainly members of the armed forces and the academic community so we can think about problems together and uh, be better equipped to solve them. So that came out as well in our conversation. And uh, I continue to think that's important, but I think that there are not a lot of people necessarily know what the mission of the CDA is as the overarching organization looking after military colleges across Canada and of course professional military education is a broader banner than that. But it's interesting to hear his point of view in that leadership position. Well, you remind me that I meant to plug in this episode, our Summer Institute. We are running the Summer Institute in August. The CDSN is, and it's an effort to bring together junior military officers, junior academics, junior policy officers, and journalists in a professional development exercise for all of them to help not only have each learn more about how Canadian defense and security operates and the challenges that they face, but also to build bridges amongst these different communities. So I should be trying to reach out to 
the general and talk to him about how we can build them into our efforts. You can go to our website, the CDSA website, to get more information about the Summer Institute. We'll have rolling admissions. We hope to get a group of 20 to 25 people together in the fourth week of August to participate in this effort. We hope to have it in person, but this year it's going to be virtual because we don't expect everybody to be immunized by the end of the summer. So thanks, Steph, for your plug of the interview and for talking through these issues. You've been working on military personnel issues and gender and politics issues for, for years. So you're one of the people I go to for perspective on, on the stories of sexual misconduct in the military. So I'm glad that you could give your expertise today on that topic. I wish we didn't have the opportunity or uh, the, the impulse to do so given the situation of, of recent days, but you're the go-to on this. And so I appreciate having you on to, to talk to you about these issues. I'm glad that we made time to talk about these issues. I think they're very important and uh, there are still a lot of misconceptions and misunderstanding around uh, sexual misconduct. So when there are stories like that or headlines breaking out, it's always a good opportunity to, to reflect on that, on existing practices and how we can all improve. Thanks again. Have a good week. I'll come back in a couple seconds with uh, my suggestions for distractions from the messes of, of the day and of the week. Sounds good. Have a great week, Steve. And See you soon. General Craig Aitchison is joining us on Battle Rhythm today for a discussion on professional military education, or PME. He assumed command of the Canadian Defense Academy last August. CDA is responsible for the Royal Military College of Canada, the Royal Military College Saint-Jean, the Canadian Forces College, and the Chief Warrant Officer Robert Osid Profession of Arms Institute. CDA is tasked with providing common professional development and education across these institutions. General Aitchison, thank you for being on Battle Rhythm. How are you? I'm great, Stephanie. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm pretty excited about this conversation. Great. I'm glad you're excited. And let's dive right in. Uh, since the show is called Battle Rhythm, I have to ask, what has your battle rhythm looked like since taking command of CDA back in August, pandemic and all? Well, uh, certainly the pandemic has impacted on, on my battle rhythm. Yesterday was the first day since this pandemic began that I worked from home, which I think is probably counterintuitive and counter most people's experience. Before I came back to Canada, before I took command, I worked in the office as we were uh, executing operations in support of the state of Alaska. And since the 14th of August, uh, when I took command, or even the 10th of August, when we started the handover for uh, command, I have worked every day in the office except for yesterday. So the rhythm has been, I'll say aggressive, uh, as I try to understand, learn, and figure out what my role is as the commander so that I can enable the headquarters and, and provide commander functions. And because of COVID, it, it has limited some of those interactions outside of Kingston in particular. But I think with technology, we've, we've found a way to, uh, to have the conversations that we need to. Uh, but it has been fast, furious, hectic. The last 100 days has absolutely flown by. But I've, I've been able to have a lot of interesting conversations with interesting people about the profession and the professional development of the profession of arms. And, including you know yourself did a podcast on arctic did a podcast on women peace and security and so uh, haven't been completely consumed by the minute to minute and have had a chance to uh, to start thinking about how the canadian defense academy supports the profession uh, from a professional development point of view 
And you'll be commander of CDA for a few years. I think that's fair to say. May I ask about your vision for CDA in terms of professional development and education? So I hope that'll be the commander for years to come. I, uh, <laughs> as you know, you know, because we've talked and, and known each other for a while and mm. passionate about individual training education. And, and so, you know, as I've been piecing together over the last few months, this whole, you know, CDA enterprise and where it fits in and trying to both wrap my head around a level of understanding that allows me to have you know, a, a vision and that's where I've spent most of my, my time and effort. And so, you know, we certainly have a, an idea of what the, the future holds and, and where we need to invest time and energy. We've crafted a vision statement that we have shared internally. And, and it deals with ideas like a world-class professional development system with a focus primarily on education and self-development. Uh, CDA is a mandate, well, that we have four pillars in our professional development framework. CDA's focus is primarily education and self-development. Uh, we certainly have a training interest, and then the fourth pillar is experience. And so that's where our focus has been, and that's where our vision is hung, you know, hung on. But the big idea, the biggest of the big ideas is mm. over the next few months, we want to put together... A, a strategy for the Canadian Armed Forces professional development that, that eventually will be written. I think it'll take us a year and a bit to, to, to get to the point where it's all, all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed and it's published. And that will bring together the professional development framework, those four pillars across five development, developmental periods, as well as all of those supporting conditions that we need in order to deliver that strategy. Very shortly here, we're going to start you know, bouncing that idea and, and helping frame exactly what that looks like with the senior leaders of the Canadian Armed Forces. And that's really kind of nascent, but that's, that's, that's the vision is world-class education, self-development, modern, supported by a network <laughs> that allows us to deliver on it using multiple avenues to achieve that professional development effect, whether it's journals, symposia, shorter engagements in conferences where we, we spend 90 minutes of a two-day conference on PD. The self-development pillar in particular, how do we enable that and, and incentivize that? How do we expand some of our throughput to maximize PD opportunities for senior officers and senior chief warrant officers and chief petty officers in particular? What's the future vision for the where uh, and how we deliver that? Lots of interest in centralizing uh, some of the, uh, the ways by which we do that. And of course, through COVID, we've learned how to leverage technology. And so how do we leverage what we now know is possible to modernize the way that we deliver some of our core programs, some of our year-long programs, uh, in a way that achieves the effect that we want, while maybe reducing some of the time demands against uh, the people that go through those programs. Okay, that's interesting. And and let me just uh, ask for maybe some examples, because I think many of our listeners understand what professional development is in their own context, but perhaps some examples of what that looks like in a military context might be useful. So our, the CAF, the Canadian Armed Forces Professional Development System, we, we use a framework that the way I visualize it at least has 20 quadrants or 20 boxes as we, as we look at the four pillars of professional development across five developmental periods. 
And so those four pillars are education, training, experience, and self-development. Mm -hmm. And the five developmental periods start from uh, recruitment or development, developmental period one or DP1 is that uh, ab initio training that takes place up to the point that that member of the profession achieves their, we call their operational function point where they are employable. And then there are, there are five developmental periods that culminate with developmental period five and DP5 is for general officers, flag officers and senior chief warrant officers. And so in any one of those 20 quadrants that, that are made up those four pillars and five developmental periods, um, there's a whole bunch of activities that take place. And so in developmental period four for officers, uh, and then, so those are colonels, there are the, the most obvious uh, develop, uh, professional development activity is the National Security Program at the Canadian Forces College, uh, which is a year-long program where those colonels learn about how Ottawa works, how national level decision-making in security and defense works, how government, how all the different departments, uh, you know, PCO, PMO, all link together to, to advance and execute the national security strategy for Canada. And then in, around that, uh, there's a, there are other less um, obvious um, professional development activities. The Torch, which is our self-development portal, has a kernels portal where every month we, we put out curated content for them to, to absorb, read, reflect on, engage each other on. There's other, obviously, self-development methods where individuals will choose to read and, and do their own research or do their own writing. There is training that takes place in that uh, developmental period. So as a, as a brigade commander, you would uh, be expected to conduct a certain amount of training, both individually and collectively, to prepare you for your role. So for example, as a brigade commander in the Canadian Army, you would go through a brigade-level collective training event where you would exercise the entire brigade and, and you in charge of that. So there's a training aspect. And then, of course, wrapped up in all of that, there's an experience that takes place either in training, in education, in doing your job. And those four things come together over that period, which for some could be as short as three years, uh, for others, uh, maybe longer. And then you exit that developmental period and you become a general officer, a flag officer, and then, and then you embark on different professional development activities. And so what I'm responsible for is the coherence of that so that at least the levers that I control uh, in terms of education self-development primarily again, allow for that person to have the, the education and self-development to be able to move into that employment, to build on that through experience, and then come at the end of that prepared for the next challenge that they're presented with. And then as the champion of that, to, uh, to engage with those that have stronger roles in the training and experience pillar to make sure that we collectively are make, ensuring that our succession planning, our talent management, our, the development of that professional is complete so that they're ready for that, that challenge, whatever it is that the Canadian Armed Forces is going to ask them to do next. So a core part of what you do in terms of thinking through longer-term outcomes is really to ensure that our current and future military leaders are equipped to be able to make the difficult decisions they'll have to make in complex environments in, in different types of operating environments absolutely and so it's often the strategic direction or the policy 
direction that we get is, is vague by design. Achieving national objectives is never as easy as, as a recipe, <laughs> especially a, a recipe with just three ingredients. There's a lot of art to taking that policy direction and turning it into tactical actions. And, and one of those roles in the professional development space is to help leaders do that. And so as, as people move through those five developmental periods, we lean more and more on education as an example. And so at the front end of a, of a career, we lean more heavily on training to prepare people for their jobs. And then as they move through time and gain experience and move into more complicated, complex, ambiguous roles, we lean more and more on education so that we have people who are critical thinkers who can take a wicked problem and turn it into some form of solution because the solutions often aren't as easy as X, right? Chaos theory thrives in the contemporary operating environment. And so how do we equip those senior leaders to be able to take that government policy uh, direction, that national strategic objective, and turn it into actions wherever they are in that operating environment to achieve those national level objectives. That isn't simple, right? It's, education isn't simple. Everybody takes away from an educational experience or something a little bit different. Everybody takes away from their, their actual experience in doing jobs a little bit differently. And I say to people, if you took three major generals from the same regiment who grew up in generally the same environment, they will have followed three different paths through 25 years of military experience and, and training and education and uh, employment. But at the end of the day, we believe that they are ready to take on similar jobs at that rank in order to accomplish whatever the government's objectives are. And so it isn't, I'll go back to it, it's not as simple as making bread. It, mm. It's... I'm not sure what the analogy is, but it's far more complicated. And, and so as a result, you have these four pillars that we rely on to prepare people for that challenge. It isn't as simple as saying there is one switch that we can pull and it prepares somebody for the challenge of commanding soldiers in a theater of operations like Iraq. It's just not that simple. It's a good analogy. Lots of people are making bread as they log down. <laughs> Everyone right. gets it. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> And I was just wondering, what is there something that sets Canada apart in terms of how it's designed its PME system? Or is it more or less the same across all NATO member states, for instance? I think as, uh, as you broaden that aperture to, to go as broad as NATO, you know, I think the, the differences become more. If you look at the Five Eyes community, the Canada, US, UK, New Zealand, Australia, I think they're very similar. And the, the five you know, Defense Academy commanders meet regularly. In fact, last week I met with my Australian counterpart virtually. I spoke today with the, with the British Defense Attaché to, to set up a meeting with my British counterpart. And I would offer that our uh, roles, responsibilities, and, and the, the ways in which we develop the profession are probably 80% the same. Certainly our... Uh, our professional military education systems are very similar. Our war colleges tend to have similar curricula. Um, I did my uh, war college program in the United States, and it is very, very similar to what we deliver in Toronto, obviously with a slight with a focus on U.S. Uh, national security decision-making processes, but a lot of similarity between those five nations. 
And, and I think it's partly because we share the way in which we, uh, we deliver that. And so we, we collaborate together. We, we take each other's best ideas and apply them to our own ways. Uh, the nuanced differences are often cultural or national or organizational. Uh, my counterpart in the United States uh, is a member of the uh, combined joint staffs staff as opposed to a separate commander. Whereas in Australia and the UK, it's, it's a little more similar to uh, what we do in the Canadian Armed Forces. But I think the similarity is reflected in the fact that we have senior officers at the developmental period three, so majors and lieutenant colonels, and then colonels at the developmental period four level who do their, their professional military education in uh, those nations. So the primary partners that we uh, engage with and US, UK, Australia, France, Germany to an extent. And then as you go broader into that NATO construct, it, it become fewer and fewer. And we do that because we know that we can, that we have those similarities in the pre preparation of those senior majors. And in terms of, of content, I'm very curious about the process of uh, curriculum revision. From where I'm sitting at Queen's University, we've had a lot of discussions on how to incorporate principles of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Of course, in the spring, the Black Lives Matter movement has really pushed us to rethink our curriculum. And I was wondering in the military realm if you've been having similar discussions on curriculum. Oh, we have, uh, absolutely. And the Vice Chief of Defense staff, who has uh, an oversight responsibility on behalf of the Chief of Defense for the content and delivery of professional development, and I have spoken a few times on you know, what are the priorities for curriculum review, and he's articulated those very clearly. One of those includes things like ethics and values. And so as you look at cultural change, which, which echoes or reflects the comment you made with respect to diversity and inclusion and you know, how do we deal with uh, hateful conduct and racism, the, prof the professional development part of the system absolutely is a place where that can take place because education is a way that we help change culture. And, and so what, what we do is we look at, you know, the governing documents, if you want, at the national level, charters of human rights, freedoms, law. We look at our own uh, ethos and how we articulate our values, which is through our capstone publication called Duty with Honor. Canadian Armed Forces is in the process of developing a code of conduct. And we take all of that and we, and we figure out through pretty smart curriculum development officers, what is the conversation? What's, how is it structured? Who facilitates it? Do we bring in external experts to talk about racism? Do we bring in our own experts in order to equip those future leaders with the tools to be able to go back to their you know, as, as they take command at the, uh, at the unit level, go back to their battalions, squadrons, and ships to drive the conversation that's necessary to change the culture. And so that's just one example of how, you know, we take uh, requirements like ethics and values, where we reach to for the reference, you know, charters of human rights, duty with honor, turn it into, you know, a, a series of 90-minute period discussions so that at the end of that year of study at the, the Canadian Forces College, that emerging leader can come out with the tools, you know, equipped to be able to facilitate the conversation. And then we can do the same through self-development where we curate a month of content on racism uh, and, then, and then give them the tools to lead the, 
very difficult conversation about racism and uh, and what it means and how to combat it because a lot of us that you know i guess happily or whichever way you look at it don't have the to lead that firsthand i i've had very little so through professional military education we can equip those leaders to be able to have the conversation about difficult topics like racism and then through self-development curate content uh, that that continues to enable them and then in, in the future we're hoping that the self-development portal that will have the capacity in the self-development portal to to have a resource portal that allow that gives tools to facilitate a fireside conversation between senior leaders and junior leaders on these really difficult topics because a lot of us simply don't have the experience firsthand in dealing with those topics and so we need to equip uh, those leaders to be able to do that. So that's part of the responsibility that I think we have here at CDA is to equip the leaders in mul multiple ways to be able to have that those difficult conversations. And there's one more thing I want to talk about with regards to CDA's mandate. I know there's also a defense diplomacy component to CDA's work, given that CDA engages with international partners. What does this entail exactly? I do know we offer educational opportunities to service members from other countries, but I'm sure there's more being done in Canada and abroad that's maybe less obvious. We have, uh, I was going to say it's, you know, multifaceted. I don't know how many multis that is uh, <laughs> off the top of my head. But over the last few months, I have learned a little bit about that. And so the, the easy one is the one that you described. About half of our colonels uh, and captains Navy, as they go through their, their fourth period of development, about half of them do that professional military education experience outside of Canada. And so whether it's in the U.S. Uh, where the vast majority go, or the U.K. or Australia or France or Germany or wherever. So there's that aspect of it. And sometimes that is about partner you know, sharing burdens and, 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 and building those relationships at that level between those key nations. But sometimes it's, it's about building partner capacity. So as I went through the majors program at CFC, we had all sorts of uh, Middle Eastern Caribbean nations who uh, participated, uh, you know, 20 odd international students. And sometimes it's about defense diplomacy. You know, we, we had a Ukrainian student on the course and I would offer that's probably more about defense diplomacy and, and showing that Canada has a direct interest in the Ukraine to uh, adversaries. And so that's, a, that's, that's the easy one. There is the uh, Partnership for Peace Consortium, which is a German US led uh, consortium with partners outside of NATO to help with capacity building and that we plug into very directly. We have through uh, different programs, uh, whether it's mines, research-oriented, obviously, or others, we have uh, relationships with a whole bunch of nations. So, for example, uh, last week or the week before, I had a, a VTC with my Iraqi counterpart, and you know, never, never thought that that was going to be on my mandate. Uh, and then this week, we participated in a cybersecurity forum that they led to help them uh, develop their own cybersecurity programs. And, and on and on. So we do it at the most tactical levels where we have instructors from military colleges going over and just helping partners build curriculum to the senior level engagements where hopefully those conditions are set that allow that tactical activity to take place. And it's, you know, it's, it's all about 
trying to change the world every a little bit at a time and also obviously building relationships for when the time comes that we have to break glass and, and get the defense industry and the, the armed forces of uh, the countries with whom we have relationships, whether it's through NATO or the five eyes or bilateral, uh, having those relationships built before we have to break glass in case of emergency and, and having had the opportunity to uh, twice uh, be posted to the United States and then more recently deploy with the United States to Iraq. The relationships that I built directly uh, with people that I would run into later or where there was only a degree of separation because we knew the same person or the fact alone that I had done my war college program in the United States reduced barriers just by those simple facts. And that is, that's a direct positive outcome of that you know, defense diplomacy space that many nations use to, uh, to build relations. The, the United States certainly has developed a really global uh, network of mill-to-mill relations that way. And you have spent some time in the United States as well as part of your military education journey. Is there anything that you experienced there that you'd like to take home for Canada? Yeah, you know, I, uh, as I look at, you know, two examples. One um, more recently, so as the, as the Deputy, General for, Deputy Commanding General for Operations in the U.S. Army Alaska, I was the Commanding General's lead uh, for uh, headquarters professional development activities and, and learned a lot about how they do it at that level. And, and so have started the conversation here just in CDA to say, okay, as a two-star headquarters, what does our professional development program look like? You know, we're the champions for PD for the Canadian Armed Forces. What do we do for PD? <laughs> and, and, uh, and should we do our own professional development on the topics that are germane to the profession? So that as we champion pan-domain operations or values and ethics, that when we say that, we know what it means. Uh, and then equally, what are our own professional development needs outside of our professional responsibilities? You know, as we look at things like resilience and, uh, and you know, topics like that, that, that we should be uh, looking at. So th the example that I saw uh, before I came home uh, was, was really well done by the, uh, the U.S. military machine and, and, and try to figure out how we do that. And then the second one is, in my um, experience, so when I did my war college program in the United States, I stayed a second year to teach at the majors uh, level as a seminar leader at the U.S. Army School of Advanced Military Studies. And we had um, nine seminars that would go through a year. So very similar to this, the Canadian Forces College Joint Command Staff Program in terms of size, scale, curriculum, et cetera. But the one nuanced difference between our program and, and the US SAMS model was that in the classroom with those uh, 16 students was a uniformed military uh, seminar leader and a PhD for all of the classes. And it was an interesting team teaching approach. Um, sometimes it was the uniform seminar leader that would speak more, sometimes it was the PhD, depending on the topic. So as, as we looked at things like military theorists, perhaps it was the PhD that was talking more. As we looked at campaign analysis, perhaps it was the military seminar leader. But the power of, of what that represented for me was, was really interesting. I think the students got a lot out of the expert in the theory, 
and the expert in the practice being in the same room at the same time and the and the tensions and the uh and the the shared space that uh that existed and so in the fullness of time uh, we'll look at you know do we have the ability to adopt a model do we even care to adopt a model but if we did care do we have you know what, what what's the resource implication beyond you know kind of the obvious hiring more phds but, but you know taking those experiences and seeing how powerful they were in the outcome are uh, absolutely things that uh, that right now are on the back burner or, or in the back of my mind that eventually will will come out once uh, once the conditions are right i couldn't agree more i have to say this is an experience i've had too at queens and this will sound a little bit like a shameless plug but we do have a visiting defense fellow program as you know and professors have worked with these vdfs as part of their classes and for my third year undergraduate class for instance international peace and security we do exactly that i'm the professor and i talk about the academic literature and then we move on to scrutinizing those theoretical teachings and we submit them to questions that are raised by the visiting defense fellow based on their more practical experience. And the students just love that interaction, marrying the theoretical with the practical and sort of testing the boundaries of this academic knowledge based on firsthand military experience. So I, I have to agree, it's a model that works quite well in the classroom. It does. And, and I think, um, you know, there's some topics that lend itself more perhaps to that than others. I think specifically as as I look back at my own experience with design theory and, and systems thinking and, and some of the truly complex readings that are out there, um, I'll be honest, I, was I would have been ill-equipped to lead that discussion. And so the PhD that I worked with was phenomenal in that, in that respect. But the application of design thinking as it relates to solving complex military problems and how we take design thinking and use that to segue into operational planning processes is, is what I understand. <laughs> and the PhD, uh, if they were a purely academic background, may not. And at the end of the day, those students need to be at that practical end because they have to be able to apply the learning. But understanding the theory that underpins that learning to the level that, that academics bring, to me, is, is, is incredibly important. And so that's to me the the value and and then you know because the the practitioner doesn't live in the world day to day year to year they don't have the depth of understanding of some of the readings that uh, that those that that live in the academic world because we just don't have you know the time to devote to that because that's not our primary function that interplay between the two to me uh, as as you so eloquently said, is so important and uh, and it's powerful. And so if you know if if we can get there from here, given the resource constraints and, and some some of the realities that we have to deal with, to me that would be a huge success, and and raise the quality bar of our programs uh, to uh, to a higher level. We've talked a lot about formal PME, but I do think that in a military context coaching and mentorship still have a role to play in terms of informal professional development. Can you give us a sense of what's being done in that space? So couldn't agree more, you know, because we have a four pillar model, we're trying to figure out which pillar it fits most <laughs> neatly in. I, I think it falls under self-development, whether it's guided self-development uh, or something like that. 
And so we're, we're looking now at uh, coaching and mentoring, uh, trying to figure out how we codify it. We do have a, a mentoring handbook been produced in 2007. So it's a little dated, but I don't think the, the ideas are out of touch with, with where we are in 2020. But how do we codify the idea of coaching uh, and then mentoring, two different things under the coaching banner? We're starting now, last few years, we have invested in executive coaching for select individuals, primarily in that developmental period four, five space. So this year, for example, all students going through the National Security Program at Canadian Forces College will get executive coaching. And it's a it's a pretty robust program where they do uh, emotional intelligence, surveys and feedback. They do 360 leadership assessments. And then they have, I think, 10 coaching sessions with the executive coach to help understand you know, where, where their strengths and weaknesses are, how to address those weaknesses, et cetera. Organizationally, we're just at the front end of that. It started outside of CDA, started at CJOC and uh, under General Rouleau. And then General Rouleau took that with him when he went to the vices shop. But I think that fits squarely into the PD framework. And so eventually we'll ask for that to migrate here for oversight and execution. I think that is one way for us to truly leverage the experience of others for the collective development, the, you know, the individuals that make up the collective. And then the, the question becomes, how do we do that? How do we codify it uh, in a way that, that we you know, kind of have to make it repetitive, right? Something that we can repeat year to year programmatic way if, uh, if we're going to do this seriously. And, and how do we do that? And you know, we've got lots of uh, retired general officers and senior leaders who help us with mentorship in some of the courses that we deliver. So we, we just a month ago uh, delivered the executive leadership program, brought in three retired three stars and a retired Canadian Armed Forces Chief Warrant Officer to help act as the mentors to the students that were going through that program. So how do we continue to build on that as a model for people both inside and outside of professional military education? And it wouldn't be great to have somebody that you could turn to and say, hey, sir, when you were doing this job or when you were in uniform, how did you deal with this challenge? It's not something that we do well as well as other nations, but it's something that I think that we need to think about. A lot of, a lot of work, time, and effort has been put into coaching uh, as, an, as a program below, within the Army. A few years ago, there was an effort at one of the division training centers to, uh, to look at a coaching program and, and codify what coaching meant. And we do it in many ways. We coach small arms. We coach a bunch of activities that we, that we deliver in the Canadian Armed Forces. And we talk about coaching and mentoring, but there's no coaching or mentoring doctrine. There's no coaching or mentoring curriculum that I think you know, is something that we, we should have, uh, is something we should consider having, and then decide if it meets that threshold for priority or not. But, but we're certainly chipping away at it and, and starting to look at it. And in our, uh, we have a, a small team here that looks at professional concepts and leadership doctrine that, that are certain to to think seriously, be seriously about what that looks like. And there's also more bottom-up approaches. I know recently the Athena Network was set up at RMC, which is a network for, for women to promote more mentorship opportunities. So it can be more formalized and sometimes it just sprouts up informally, which is great Absolutely. to see. It is great to see. And, you know, we've got so many good, good leaders at all levels, commissioned or not, who are passionate about what they do and getting them out to be able to talk about that passion to the greater benefit is again something that I think we owe ourselves and 
and whether it's my responsibility as the commander of CDA or just leaders' responsibility to engender those conversations that we need to be having. It doesn't matter to me. I don't, I don't need to lead all of it. Somebody does, <laughs> right? And uh, if every problem isn't a nail, then is every solution a hammer? I don't want to be the hammer if the problem isn't mine and if it's not a nail. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a perfect note to end on. General Aitchison, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for being on Battle Rhythm and stay safe. Stephanie, my pleasure as always. And look forward to uh, being able to collaborate again in the future. For this week's R&R segment, I've got three recommendations as usual. Uh, the first is Lupin. It is on Netflix. It is a French TV show, only of five episodes. I'm halfway through it and it is delightful. It's about a man who is a gentleman burglar whose first heist is, yes, at the Louvre. So if you've done any tourism in Paris and you've been to the Louvre, it kind of looks recognizable. And it's very clever. It's, it's very engaging. It's very, very addictive. If you speak French, you can watch in French. If you don't speak French, you can either watch, read the subtitles or listen to the English version. The dubbing is actually quite good, but it's really one of the best things I've watched lately. The second thing I'm going to recommend is The Making of the Mandalorian, that if you've got Disney+, Plus, you've watched The Mandalorian, then you can watch the making of stuff. There's there's only one episode for the season two making of, but it it's so good. It's so interesting to see how they do things, uh, how they think about things, how careful they are about things that appear in one episode that show up in a later episode. And of course, it's, it's inspired me to rewatch the second season uh, as I treadmill my way through the pandemic. So the third is an old book. It is William Goldman's Adventures of the Screen Trade. William Goldman wrote the screenplay for Princess Bride, as well as for Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid and a bunch of other really terrific uh, movies. And he wrote this book in the early 1980s about Hollywood, about how, how movies are made. And so it's a bit dated, but I bought it for my daughter uh, long ago because she was an aspiring filmmaker and she's still an aspiring filmmaker, but she left it behind when she moved out to Hollywood. So I've been reading it and it's really engaging. And uh, if you're older, it's kind of fun because it, it's really talking about sort of the movie scene of the 1980s, early 1980s. But uh, the, dy the dynamics still apply today, even though lots in the business has changed. So I'm really enjoying that. So those are my three recommendations. I do suggest that everybody be careful, despite what the government of Ontario says or whatever your government says. Maybe the curves are bending downwards, but with the latest variants being more infectious, we still need to keep our guard up until we're all vaccinated. So good luck getting a vaccination. Stay, stay home, be distanced, wear your mask, do all the right things and be well in this, this difficult time. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to cdsn.rcds.outlook.com. Thank you.